Chapter 5, the hurricane Celia gives birth. It really did. The results of our work with the Lubbock tornado gave us a reputation among Texas Baptists as disaster responders. In a sense, we were outstanding in the field among Baptists. Simply because there was no one else in the field, but all of this activity created recognition of a needed ministry for Baptists. And it put us in leadership positions because we were the only ones who had any experience with disasters and were also working in the Baptist General Convention of Texas headquarters. We were also in the same suite of offices. Even though I was not with Texas Baptist men, I was in their office section and I gave us immediate contact and constant contact with each other. Uh, this aided our imagineering and our, uh, and our, our sometimes like, um, why ifing and why notting? We got into that, but we bounced ideas off each other. And sometimes we shouted from office to office. Other times we'd gather in the storage area with a coffee pot to do our what ifing and why notting. With these facts in mind, it was natural for the BGCT to come to us when a major hurricane was forecast to hit somewhere on the Texas coast. Since hurricane landfall prediction uh, was rather uh, scarce in 1969, it wasn't well developed, we decided to prepare for a deployment, but still keep our regular schedules until we knew more. My schedule called for me to be in a church between Harlingen and Brownsville, Texas. That's right down to the Texas border for a youth meeting. This is the area of South Padre Island, uh, in this area of South Padre Island, long, narrow island that was only accessible by a bridge from the mainland near Harlingen. During the meeting, the hurricane reports kept changing as it moved closer to land. The pastor, who was a missionary pilot, and the summer missionary, Bill Arnold, Bill was from Memphis, Tennessee, and had earned his pilot's license before he was eligible for a driver's license. They urged me to fly out to sea and to look for the leading edge of the storm in the clouds. I had borrowed a four-place aircraft, a Cessna Cardinal, a Cessna 177, from the county judge in Nacogdoches, Texas, George Middlebrook, Jr., because I wanted to be able to quickly respond to any area the hurricane might strike. We flew over the Gulf of Mexico, due east from Harlingen, and crossing Padre Island. We noticed the beach was full of swimmers and campers, and I saw the circular pattern in the clouds. Oh my. I commented, well, there it is. When I lived on Galveston Island, I saw this phenomenon just before the 1947 hurricane hit. The wind-driven waves and the unusually high tide brought the sea up to the top of the 12-foot seawall. I was interrupted by the pastor who exclaimed, Oh, no! All those people on the beach at Padre Island may not know what's about to happen. We have to warn them. We flew back to the coast and started up Padre Island from the Brownsville-Mexico border at an altitude of about 20 feet. I put down one notch of flaps so it would be slow flying, we went by the campers with the window open, shouting, Hurricane! Hurricane! Go! Hurricane! Go! While waving toward the bridge. Some people uh, uh, didn't really understand us because of the, of the noise and the sea and these sort of things. 
And so what we would do then is circle back. And uh, yes, as we got to them, we throttle the engine back so it was quiet. We'd yell and then uh, make another pass and uh, shout again. We flew up the island until we had uh, warned all the campers. Then we flew back down the island to be sure everyone was safe because the tide and storm surge were beginning to cover the island. There was a lot of traffic at the bridge, but one fellow in the VW camper had been slow to leave his campsite. We saw the Volkswagen stall in rising water, which had already cut off the rest of the island from the bridge. It had both front doors open and the waves were washing through it. I saw the footprints of the camper on the other side of the wash. He made the bridge. <laughs> we landed, put the aircraft in a hangar, and joined the crowd gathered in the church building and rode out the storm. We had strong winds and rain, but the eye of the hurricane veered to the north and hit Corpus Christi, Texas. When I was able to call Dr. McLaughlin, he gave me a report on the damage in the Corpus area. Roads were blocked with downed power lines. Uh, homes were destroyed, but they needed a point man to make contact with the director of missions in the city. The point man would also survey the other needs and make contact with the jurisdictional authorities to get information and to offer help. Well, he sent me a fax identifying me as the disaster personnel and giving me authority to represent the BGCT executives uh, in the disaster response. That letter kept me out of a lot of trouble with the Federal Aviation Administrator later that day. Bill Arlen and I flew to Corpus that afternoon. We had to get permission from the Texas Department of Public Safety Emergency Operations to fly into the area. They gave us the emergency uh, radio frequency to use for the air traffic control since the control tower had been destroyed. Well, lesson to be learned. Double check the information, then double check the double checker when operating in disaster situations. The person giving us the frequency had an accent and what we took for 121.5 was actually 121.9. Oh, brother, did that cause a problem? As we approached the airport, we tried to make contact for permission to land. We were unable to make contact. We circled the airport and landed on a runway strewn with de debris. We taxied by destroyed hangars and large multi-engine uh, aircraft like DC-3s were blown over on top of each other. We found an open space and parked the plane. I hardly had exited the plane when a large angry man drove up in a government car. He demanded to know which of us was the pilot in command. I identified myself and the angry tirade began about unauthorized sightseers and violating temporary flight restriction airspace, etc. When when he paused to get a breath, I told him I was the representative from the Baptist General Convention of Texas Disaster Service and showed him the letter. He looked stunned. He asked, why didn't you contact air traffic control? I told him we'd been calling the tower frequency that had been given us with the DPS, 121.5. He rolled his eyes and said, oh, I'm sorry. Nine and five sounds so much alike when you're on the radio. Well, I gathered the needed information made the appropriate contacts and got permission to establish our disaster response center 
at the Morgan Avenue Baptist Church. I dropped back, I flew back and dropped Bill in Harlingen, flew on to Dallas. I'd called my wife and told her what was happening and issued instructions for putting my gear in the motorhome. But when I got to Dallas, I was in for a surprise. <laughs> my whole family was packed into that rig, mother-in-law and all. They said they wanted to be a part of the response. I had automatically assumed that this work was was for the fellows with experience and outdoor skills. But boy, were they a blessing. We arrived at the Morgan Avenue Baptist Church the next morning. I hooked up the motorhome generator to the circuits that provided lights for the church basement. My wife began to do her thing. She is a fantastic organizer, administrator, and a detailed report keeper. And I hate paperwork. But my mother-in-law ran a restaurant for many years, and she took over crew and refugee feeding in the church kitchen. And my son, who's nine years old, began to sort clothes and shoes in preparation for their distribution. Bob Dixon, Cameron Byler, and Jerry Bob Taylor worked in the field. They were organizing distribution points for aid on that uh, hold on that uh, wholesale retail level they'd done in any other disasters and they were directing work on various repair projects my crew and i processed all the volunteers and gave them assignments to dixon's projects as i look back on this operation i can see how god was giving us new experiences teaching us to be fluid not just flexible putting us in situations where the like the disciple peter you focused on him or you sank and making us walk on our knees in prayer. We were being put in the crucible. The furnace was hot, but God was about to make a new mold and pour us into it. He was making us into a new ministry that was to become one of the strongest ministries of the Baptist General Convention of Texas and the Southern Baptist Convention. The spiritual sensitivity and organizing brilliance of Dr. Charles McLaughlin enabled him to see what God was doing. He was doing a new thing with Baptists. And he had the well, he had the courage to take all of this to the next level, which he did. And it was amazing what happened after that. Well, God bless you for listening. I'm Dr. John Lanoue, and I'm in his grip, holding on, praising God. Thank you. I would divine, I would call this podcast a divine design because when we returned from Hurricane Celia, Dr. Charles McLaughlin, being the visionary leader that he was, he briefed us individually and as a group for the after action report. He was so impressed with our response and ability to organize, uh, he, uh, he made us members of a disaster relief committee, Bob Dixon suggested that every entity in the BGCT which might be involved in a response be added to our committee. Church architecture, evangelism, public relations, women's missionary union, the State Missions Commission, Texas Baptist Men, and the Texas State Youth Coordinator. That made up the original disaster committee. 
many of, of these had never had any idea of uh, ever responding to a disaster event. But as the state youth coordinator, I was invited for three reasons. I was one of the original responders. I was a liaison with the 23 Baptist camps, which would be excellent refugee centers. And I had designed and built three mobile clinics for the Amigos Internacionales, Rio Grande River Ministry of Texas Baptist. The committee's discussions were originally guided by Dr. McLaughlin and later by Dr. Eugene Greer, his executive assistant. All of the possible ministry contributions of each group were discussed. It was as if we had drilled a gusher in an oil field. Our extensive prayer sessions had opened our hearts to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and he put our minds in high gear. Bob Dixon was an extremely creative instrument in pulling all these discussions into focus. He said that the disaster response of other groups were all similar, everyone trying to meet all the victims' needs. He compared it to driving on a trip and your gas gauge is nearly empty. There's no gas stations in sight. And just as you're about to panic, you come to a highway intersection and there are gas stations on every corner all offering identical services. Bob suggested that we focus on one particular response service and make it whatever other services we provided as ancillary to that ministry. Bob said, as Baptists, we're good at two things, worshiping and eating. Since we've trained so many of our Baptist men who work with boys in camping, <clears throat> we have a great pool of outdoor cooks who can camp while they work. Let's major on the provision of hot meals to the victims and the disaster response workers. Then we can let our people branch out to meet other needs as a surface, uh, as they surface and uh, as we're able to provide manpower. Well, we need some type of mobile unit containing all these things, Bob said. Each of your groups would like to find on the site. Well, whatever you want to find on the site when you respond. This would be provided um, and put a, make it an event-ready box with your supplies delivered to the disaster. We need some type of mobile disaster unit. He turned to me and said, Johnny, you've done mobile clinics. Would you design a unit for us? I raised my left hand with the index finger uh, extended. Uh, I tell you, Bob Dixon used to be a ball player, and he knows that that's a sign uh, that you need to uh, wait a minute and uh, get more more information. My goodness, I, I prayed, uh, Lord, and I got a divine uh-huh. I said, yes, sir, I will. I was so overwhelmed I could not speak. I, I sensed the job assignment was God-sized, not Johnny-sized. All I could do was bow my head and pray. Father, I am to accept this this or pass it on. It's up to you. Is, is it for me to do? Immediately God answered with a divine, uh-huh. I said, okay, Lord. Uh, then I spoke to the people. Would everyone please make a list of what they want on the unit and what they want it to do uh, and what it should be, what it should contain for their group? I asked 
how long I had before the plan was due, and they replied, two weeks. Whoa, <laughs> I had two immediate thoughts. John, don't panic. And the other, God, this ball is in your court definitely. I simply replied calmly, okay. After collecting the list, the sixth list, I went to my office and called a friend of mine who owned Hicks Engineering Company. I explained the project, read him the list, and asked how long would it take his company to design such a unit. He was silent for a while, then replied, well, John, if I pull everyone off of all the jobs we have now and put them on this, it'd take about six weeks. I commented, Mr. Hicks, I only have two weeks. He laughed and said, I hope you're a man of prayer. And pray I did. For two weeks, every day was a day of prayer. I would kneel and pray with my pad, a quadrille picker, uh, ready to uh, ready to draw. I would read through the list and pray for a way to package them. My prayer questions were, what kind of vehicle? If a trailer, what size? If a truck or bus, what size? What kind? I drew a blank every night. Nothing materialized. The 14th day was Sunday. I went to the Glen Rose Baptist camp for a youth meeting. As I left the camp, I prayed, Father, this is the last day to prepare those plans that are due tomorrow. You told me to accept the assignment. What do I do now? I was suddenly filled with a peaceful assurance that all was well. He was on the job, and all I had to do was be still and watch him work in a way that would prove that it was his work and not mine or any other man. Folks, I raced home in my VW bug. Well, maybe race is a little exaggeration in a 40 horsepower of VW, but I did keep the accelerator on the floor. I dashed into the house at 12.30 a.m. on Monday morning, the day the plans were due. They were due at nine o'clock. I grabbed my drafting instruments, dashed to the kitchen table, pinned a sheet of drafting paper on the drawing board, racked up my T-square, picked up my pencil and prayed, Lord, I'm in your hands. It's up to you alone. There's no way that I can take credit for any of this. I'm simply your instrument. I await your direction. Folks, he stepped in with his power. I began to see a vision of a drop frame moving van. It was forming in my mind. How big are they? I used a divinely guided guess. When the plan was finished, I measured one. And I discovered my guessing was six inches narrower and one foot shorter than the actual trailer. Now, folks, that's pretty close for a Baptist preacher at 1 o'clock in, in the morning. My pencil flew across the paper again and again. I drew a scale of a half inch to the foot. First, the floor plan, the elevation of the right and left exterior walls, the right and left elevations of the interior walls, finally the elevation of the rear wall, uh, which was a double door, but we were going to put just a regular household door in it. At 6.30 in the morning, my wife came to the kitchen and asked, are you coming to bed? I replied, no, honey, just fix my breakfast. I can't quit now. I finished the plans, rolled them up, and headed for the office. I taped the plans on the conference room wall and waited for the committee to meet. I expected to have some criticism from the groups and suggestions for changes, so I was prepared to make notes. 
but I had underestimated the father. For two and a half hours, I explained the plans and answered questions. The plans were examined from all angles. Finally, the group fell silent and suddenly broke out in applause. Not one change was suggested. I was shocked. I had been in Baptist committees for years where there was a unanimous agreement, but never in a committee that broke out in applause. My, how blessed I was. Well, as we continued uh, to work on it, I, I came home that night. I hadn't slept in a long time, but something made me uneasy, uncomfortable, and I, I really couldn't figure out what it was. And so uh, I went to bed, and before I went to sleep, uh, I, I, I thought, oh, my goodness. I forgot to take into consideration the shape of the road. You see, I knew there was a hidden problem somewhere. I couldn't sleep. So when I spread the plans out, suddenly I saw it. I considered the needed uh, sections and the needed equipment, but I had not considered the roadway on which it would travel. All roads are made with a slight turtle back cross section to disperse water. That fact meant that the rig would have a tendency to tilt slightly to the right in transit to offset this and prevent the tendency to capsize in a left turn. The heavier equipment needed to be on the left side. And I had it drawn with all the heavy stuff on the right side. The next morning after the sun was up, I taped the plans to a window in my office I taped them up backwards and using tracing paper taped over it to realign the heavy side on the left. Oh, hey, no problem. <laughs> oh, God is so good. When he does things, he does them right. God bless you and have a great day.